I'd like to welcome listeners to this special edition of Blood Podcast. My name is Jason Gottlieb from the Stanford Cancer Institute, and I serve as one of Blood's podcast editors. Today, we're delighted to have Dr. Dan Arbor from the University of Chicago and Dr. Elias Campo from the University of Barcelona. With members of the Clinical Advisory Committee, Drs. Arbo and Campo led efforts to develop the new International Consensus Classification, or ICC. Dr. Arbor is first author of the ICC report on myeloid neoplasms and acute leukemias, and Dr. Campo is first author on the ICC report of mature lymphoid neoplasms. Drs. Arbor and Campo, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for providing some more background and color commentary on the International Consensus Classification. Thank you for, uh, for your interest and having us here. For having us. Oh, my pleasure. So perhaps I can start with you, Dan. Why did you organize the International Consensus Conference on the Classification of Myeloid and Lymphoneoplasms that occurred in Chicago in September 2021? Well, we felt it was important to have input from a clinical advisory committee. And that has been the process that's been used ever since the uh, Society for Hematopathology and the European Association for Hematopathology partnered with IARC to create the uh, third, fourth, and revised fourth edition WHO classifications. So for those, there were clinical advisory committee meetings that brought pathologists, oncologists, hematologists, and geneticists together to uh, come to agreement on how to do the classifications. And we wanted to continue that process. We had reached out to the leadership of the uh, WHO fifth edition to start the process for a clinical advisory committee meeting in early 2020, and it just never really uh, worked out. We weren't able to come to agreement on how to do that. So the societies agreed to sponsor this clinical advisory committee meeting, which we held in uh, Chicago in uh, late 2021. Well, thank you for that. And Elias, let me ask you, for the ICC, which methodology did you follow for developing the international consensus classification? Well, the methodology, as Dan said, was very similar to the other classifications developed in the last 20 years. It was based on a collegial work of many people with a goal of reaching consensus in which were the changes that we needed. And all that started by the identification by the steering committee of questions and topics that we thought required revision. This identification was already based on previous work by the both societies of hematopathology that Dan mentioned, the European and, and the American societies. And uh, these questions were handled in the case of lymphoid neoplasias, were handled to 13 uh, working groups, uh, different working groups with uh, different uh, uh, members selected for working in different topics. And these groups work out these questions, and some added, some other deleted the questions, and proposed consensus conclusions that were debated and presented and discussed in the meeting in Chicago. And after these presentations, we reached consensus. Some of the topics were really heated in terms of discussions and required a vote. And uh, in some minor topics, uh, still, there were some discussions after the meeting, but always uh, what ended up in the publications were aspects that were, we all reached consensus on these topics. And Dan, would you like to provide any additional comments about the methodological approach to the ICC? The myeloid and uh, acute leukemia sections followed the similar approach. There was a lot of pre-CAC work done by uh, working groups to tee up the key questions and to debate them at the meeting. And then there was a lot of work afterwards to, once we kind of had our marching orders from the CAC of what to do to kind of get the details in place for the publication. 
Dan, in the last few years, genomic profiling has revealed molecular entities with different outcomes informing disease classification. Can you touch on some of the new entities in the consensus classification of acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia? Sure. The classification became much more molecular-based than in the prior classifications. In particular, it's been clear that CEBPA mutations alone are not enough to define the prognostic entity of AML with mutated CEBPA, and that you need to have the in-frame BZIP mutation for that category. Uh, and then new molecular categories were added for AML, including AML with TP53 mutations, and then uh, this new category of AML with myelodysplasia-related uh, gene mutations was added. And then on the acute lymphoblastic leukemia lymphoma side, uh, there were quite a few changes. There was the AML with bcr able one fusions has now been split into cases that have single lineage versus multi-lineage abnormalities with the multi-lineage abnormality cases being more like blast transformation of CML. The cases of bcr able like ALL have been split to better define the categories where there are those that come in the able one class rearrangements and those that involve the JAK-STAT pathway. And then there are a whole new list of mutations that are associated with ALL that have been added. And while not everyone might be able to test for them right now, at least they're on the list so that labs can start testing for these and we can start identifying these groups of diseases that seem to be biologically relevant. And Elias, can you talk to what extent genetic studies have modified the lymphoid classification and are they recommended for clinical practice? Sure. I think, uh, similar to myeloid, uh, genetic alterations have played a major role in, in defining some entities. Uh, and I would like to highlight the subclassification of multiple myeloma that now recognizes different genetic subtypes defined by specific genetic alterations. Uh, in other uh, entities, uh, like in the large visceral lymphoma with IR4 translocation, the identification of this translocation is essential for the diagnosis and similar to other entities. But also I would like to emphasize that some of the genetic alterations also are recommended for management decisions, like the detection of uh, the mutational status of the immunoglobulins of uh, P53 mutations in chronic lymphocytal leukemia. And uh, finally, also uh, some mutations are considered relevant for the differential diagnosis of some entities, like uh, MIDI-88 uh, in certain uh, appropriate pathological contexts, or MAP2K1 uh, mutations in pediatric follicular lymphomas and other entities. So the genomic or genetical alterations are permeating uh, in different ways many different entities in the lymphoma classification. So how about we stay on the topic of lymphoneoplasms? Can you talk to us what are some of the main changes in lymphoneoplasms in relation to the revised fourth edition of the WHO? Yeah, I think the changes can be ordered in different uh, levels. Some, uh, not many, but some new entities have been incorporated, like primary uh, called leukemia disease. The CAC considered that enough information was out uh, to identify this entity. Uh, some types of uh, follicular lymphoma, like uh, BCL2 rearrangement negative with expression of CD23 follicular lymphoma, was considered that has a clinical pathological and molecular profile that is uh, quite distinctive of other follicular lymphomas. And other entities uh, are new and incorporated. Some of them are still considered provisional in the sense that uh, we need more information to clarify the nature of this. I think, as I mentioned, some uh, 
entities have been um, uh, modified by uh, genetic criteria to define the subtypes. Uh, also, some entities have been better uh, defined and the criteria more refined based on different aspects, like what we call before gray zone lymphomas. Now, uh, we think that really uh, gray zone lymphomas intermediate are uh, restricted to tumors in the mediastinum between classical Hodgkin lymphoma and uh, primary mediastinal visceral lymphoma. Those are cases in which could be uh, mediastinal grazing lymphomas, because in other locations, it is now information suggesting that are not real uh, intermediate, but just variants of uh, large lymphoma. And there are other uh, changes in terminology, like in uh, peripheral tissue lymphomas with a phenotype of follicular helper uh, cells that uh, is a conceptual unifying criteria and others. So I, I, I would say that the, the modifications are uh, in the classification are in different levels, as I mentioned. Elias, thank you for laying that out. And uh, perhaps we can pivot back to the myeloid side. Dan, in the 2016 WHO classification of MDS, the only subtype of mild dysplastic syndrome defined by genetic features was MDS with isolated DEL5Q. Does the new IC classification of MDS include novel molecular entities? Can you talk to that? Sure. As I mentioned, the approach in general for the myeloid neoplasms was to move to more of a molecular classification. So in relation to MDS, we tried to recognize the importance of clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance and how it is a precursor to myelodysplastic syndrome. It's become much more clear that MDS with SF3B1 mutations is a distinct entity is not just uh, exactly the same as MDS with ring sideroblasts, and that the mutation is the important factor in determining the good prognosis of this entity. And it's become more clear that multi-hit TP53 mutations in the setting of MDS define a bad prognostic disease that needs, needed to be defined independent of last cell count. Those are the major changes. There's still categories that are defined by morphology, but the move was to define more things by molecular genetics than um, in previous classifications. Concerning, Dan, the conventional BLAST threshold of 20% defining acute myeloid leukemia, does the ICC introduce novel criteria for the distinction between MDS and AML? Yes, and this is probably one of the more controversial areas in the uh, myeloid part of the classification. Uh, certainly, there's some types of AML that have recurring genetic abnormalities like acute promyelocytic leukemia, where it, most people agree it's acute leukemia no matter what the blast cell count was. And for those cases, we've now defined those kind of defining recurring genetic abnormalities as being AML with a blast count as low as 10%. For patients with more MDS-related disease, there's this new category of MDS slash AML that covers the cases that have MDS-defining genetics either at the mutation level or the karyotype level with 10 to 19% blast cells uh, with the idea that some are going to behave more like AML and some more like MDS to give more flexibility in the diagnosis. So those cases are called MDS AML at 10% to 19%. And then when they get to 20% or higher, they're just plain AML. Elias, returning to uh, lymphoid disease, one of the most common lymphomas is diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. How is the novel genomic information on these lymphomas addressed in the classification? This was an area of uh, big discussion because, as you said, a huge amount of information, of genetic information, has been generated in the last years, providing a new perspective of these very heterogeneous tumors. 
the conclusions were that in spite of some controversies, uh, we think that the determination of the cell of origin of uh, these tumors is uh, providing uh, clinical and biological information that is relevant. So we, we keep this information. Also, we recognize that the new genetic uh, subgroups, five to seven, depending of, of the studies of these new novel genetic subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma were uh, relevant and important and maybe determining the treatment of in the future. But for different reasons, the CAC considered that still the information was premature to be recommended as a routine clinical practice, although recognizing that probably this is the way to go for future uh, studies and particularly in clinical trials, combining the cell of origin together with these genetic uh, studies defining these new subgroups. And Elias, can you also talk about the main changes in the refinement and the definition of high-grade B-cell lymphomas in general? Sure, this is an important uh, aspect and change in the classification. Uh, this group of cases are considered clinically very aggressive, in which we do not have uh, the proper therapy we consider. And within this group, it was recognized that the information generated in the last year might identify the subgroup of high-grade B-cell lymphomas with rearrangements of BMIC and BCL2. That was, we think, a category well-defined and, and, and recognized with clinical impact. It was more controversy with the, also the high-grade lymphomas, morphology the high-grade lymphomas, but with rearrangement of MIC and BCL6. In the previous classification, that was together with the MIC and BCL2. However, it was considered that these cases probably are more heterogeneous are, uh, and um, the information is not uh, enough to consider that a clear entity. But it still uh, was considered to recognize them, uh, these cases, as a provisional category to allow further studies to better uh, characterize these tumors. And finally, there is a subgroup of uh, cases that morphologically, cytologically, the pathology recognizes a high grade, but in which these alterations cannot be detected in combination. Uh, still, uh, that was considered heterogeneous and probably much work will be needed to characterize them. But for the moment, it was considered that uh, we can uh, keep this category to recognize group these cases and provide further studies. Elias, can you also talk to the terminology or conceptual changes to the previously called nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma and why changes were made at this time? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question and topic because for many years, we all considered that this entity was not real a Hodgkin, uh, similar to classic Hodgkin. They, they have in, in common that there are only few cells scattered in an inflammatory uh, background. But uh, the predominant lymphocyte, nodular lymphocyte predominant, had a totally different phenotype. And also there were some genetic and molecular studies uh, indicating them that they are uh, different from classic. Uh, Hodgkin and also the, the, this entity was evolving or probably more related to what we call T-cell rich uh, large B-cell lymphoma. And therefore, we thought it was time to separate that from the classical Hodgkin that is also very well defined. And in this way, we qualified with the terminology a concepts that we all long ago agree upon that. And I think that's a reason to change terminology because the terminology should reflect uh, 
conceptual uh, ideas and conceptual changes. Dan, let me pivot back to you. Um, there's widespread use of massively parallel DNA sequencing that has allowed the identification of a plethora of conditions with germline genetic predisposition for the development of hematologic neoplasms. Does the IC classification consider these to be conditions? Well, the classification built on what the revised fourth edition of the WHO did, which recognized categories of hematologic neoplasms with germline predisposition. And we now know that there are even more than were listed in that classification. So germline TP53 mutations were added. Mutations around SAMD9 and SAMD9L have been added. And then the classification, the, the hard part has always been around, you know, something's germline and they have this kind of germline condition that doesn't quite meet criteria for MDS or AML or another disease. And now the classification allowed you to make the diagnosis of their neoplasm and then use a modifier that it's there's a germline predisposition. For example, a patient may have acute myeloid leukemia with a RUNX1 mutation, and that RUNX1 mutation is germline. So then you would qualify the diagnosis with RUNX1 germline mutation to make it clear. Great. Thank you for that. Let me just end by asking both of you, how do you plan to promote the international consensus classification and what are your plans for updating it in the future? Well, we do have a number of other publications coming out outside of the blood publications to help pathologists learn more about the details of the classification uh, and then presentations at national meetings. I'll let Elias uh, speak to other options. I think those are, uh, we, we are planning to now in different publications going into more details of these missions that we uh, details of the classification that will help pathologists to recognize the entities. Also, we are promoting um, uh, some uh, courses to our, uh, the members with Dan and the US and also here in, in Europe. And uh, I think uh, it's important to debate and, uh, and teach about the, these new changes because they are going to influence how we practice hematopathology and, and help uh, clinicians to manage the, their patients. Gentlemen, thank you very much for lending your time today to provide additional insights about the new international consensus classification. And we appreciate your efforts in bringing together hematopathologists, laboratory scientists, and clinicians to provide an integrated and multidisciplinary approach toward classifying these neoplasms. For our listeners, the two papers on the international consensus classification appear in the September 15th issue of Blood. We also encourage you to read the accompanying perspective article by Blood Associated Editors Mary Cazola and Laurie Sen entitled Developing a Classification of Hematologic Neoplasms in the Era of Precision Medicine. To read the article, visit www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. Thank you.